0: Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast.
1: Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett.
0: What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about horror, we're talking about horror themed games, games that give you that weird creepy feeling and we've got Danny Lott on the show today Danny's got a really cool game coming out called Coma Ward this very kind of scary horror theme game I'm excited to talk to him about Danny welcome to the show
1: hello Gabe and thank you for having me on I'm very excited about this today
0: yeah man it's great to have you now Coma Ward's a, a game that I saw just a few weeks ago that I saw it's coming out I think it's a Kickstarter game coming out soon not coming out but I'm going to be on Kickstarter right
1: Right. We're going to Kickstarter early October, so it should be on there right now. Awesome. And so I am, I'm i pumped, man, because the more I
0: learned about it, the more I saw the different things about how it works and the mechanisms and the creepiness of it, the more I was like, this is a very interesting game. It's not a game like anything else I've really ever seen before. And so I'm excited to talk to you about that uh, here in a little bit and talk about horror. But first, give the listeners your, your background. Maybe they never heard of you. Tell them your bio.
1: Sure. So my name's lot Lott. Uh, Come Award's going to be my first published game. I have done a lot of content creation for board game reviews. I am working on starting Central Florida's premier board game cafe, The Game Shelf. And I also work with an organization called the Indie Game Alliance. We help independent publishers and designers get their projects through and on Kickstarter. If you've ever kickstarted a project, you've probably played an IGA game.
0: Very cool, man. And
1: I didn't didn't realize you were with the IGA, now how'd you get into that? Uh, So it's a little convoluted, the guy that Runs it. His name is Matt Holden. Phenomenal man. He actually introduced me to everything Epic was public and co-board. He lives in Central Florida where I live and I just went to an event to promote the game shelf and met him and then we just kind of connected and he saw that I was doing reviews and so our two worlds kind of just collided. It was pure coincidence.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan of the IG. I think they're doing some really, really cool stuff. Uh, I've talked to a couple of guys that work for it. Didn't realize you were one of those people as well. <laughs> and they got some really cool stuff. I think I need to do an episode just about the IGA and have uh, somebody come on and talk about it. We'll, we'll look into that down down the road. But also, you're doing a gaming cafe. Like, I'm learning all these new things about you I didn't realize <laughs> until you just said it. And so tell me how, like, where'd that come from, the, the
1: gaming cafe? Oh, boy. All right. Do you want the short version? Let's do the or short the... one so we can get okay. into the topic here shortly. But yeah, I just, gotcha. I'm just curious. <laughs> so I uh, quit teaching because I it became about something that I wasn't about anymore, yeah. and I realized that I love board games and I could still teach and help the community mm-hmm. by providing food and an educational outlet for kids that isn't a boring after school activity, yeah. and it would impact families and everybody. And also, there's not one in Central Florida, so we needed to fix that.
0: Right? No, that's really cool, man. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a teacher as well. I'm teaching down in Honduras right now and one thing I thought about doing is starting like a little D&D club like some of the kids oh, yeah. they they actually I when, I when they first came to class first day I'm kind of telling them about me and just introducing myself and I told them yeah I love board games I love D&D and some of those students were like can we play D&D like we've never been able to play it's just not a thing here in Honduras and I was like well man I, I need to get on that I need, and so I'm hopefully next semester uh, gonna have some time in the afternoons maybe run run some sessions run some games we'll see Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that there's ever going to be a Honduran board game cafe. I don't think that there's the uh, market for that yet, but uh, maybe, who knows? We'll, we'll see. <laughs> awesome. Well, cool. First thing, let's, let's talk about your game, man. Tell me more about Coma Ward. Tell people who've never heard of it. Tell them about what Coma Ward is.
1: Sure. So Coma Ward is a survival slash psychological horror game that takes place in an abandoned hospital. Players take on the role of individuals who've just awoken from a coma, who have no recollection of who they are or why they're there. The hospital is functioning, but empty. And so you begin exploring, trying to find anything you can to help you piece together what's going on. Eventually, you'll find three clues. And the order you find those clues in will tell you, in the base game, what envelope to pull out. And inside that envelope, you'll reveal what's going on in this hospital. Sometimes the hospital's a real place, and there's a tangible threat that's actually happened. Other times, it can be more of a metaphor or kind of a mental arena. And the whole goal of the game is to have players... It's, it's basically like baby's first RPG. <laughs> so you we don't give you anything about your character. You make it all up as you go. Um, and it's very narrative-driven. It's a lot like Betrayal at House on the Hill and Arkham Horror. Meet a choose-your-own-adventure novel told through the lens of Stephen King and Clive Barker. It is not for kids. It is very mature. We talk about sexuality and violence, uh, mental illness, and we explore kind of uh, less spooky, ooh, there's a tentacle monster, and more like existential dread and true terror.
0: Yeah, so less Scooby-Doo, more Stephen King.
1: Yes. Yeah,
0: and that's... Like I don't know of a game that's really done that, maybe at least not one that I've heard of. Maybe it's, maybe it's out there somewhere, but I've never heard of a game that's really taken this approach. One of the things I was really interested by—not that I'm interested in violence and gore and all that—but <laughs> it's just right. like, wow, this is a brand new thing that somebody's trying to do, and it's got this really interesting horror theme. Now let's let's kind of talk about the horror theme. How do you create that? Like, how do you evoke that
1: experience? That is a great question. So. A lot of people have compared horror to comedy and mystery and and they're right. Because the big thing about comedy and horror that they share is it's about expectations and defying them. Um, We know how story structures work. We've been telling stories since the inception of the consciousness. We've been painting on walls for generations. It's inherent to us. And our first stories were scary stories because they were teaching us, you wanna do this thing. You want to steal because having things is good, but if you steal, the creepy demon from the smoke will kill you. So don't <laughs> do it. Oh well, that's not what I expected. I better not steal. And so horror's about playing with expectations. Um, it's also about playing on the connectedness of humanity and the biggest connection in human life. Comedy draws on the connection of surprise and happiness. Horror draws on the connection of loss and uncertainty. Mm. And to me, good horror has to evoke two powerful things. It has to be disempowering. The difference between a horror movie and an action movie is your gun works. Mm -hmm. The difference because Alien 2 is an action movie. Their guns work. Alien 1 is a horror movie. Ripley ain't got no working gun. (laughs) Right. You have to disempower your main character because if they know they can come out on top, it's not scary. So you have to have disempowerment. And the other thing is it has to pull into uncertainty and and the darkness of either loss or unpredictability or no control. And if you don't evoke those two key points, your horror is going to be weak.
0: Yeah. Now, I think you make an incredible point. You're talking about the unknown, right? We want to mess with people's ideas and like, what I love about your game, it's set in an empty hospital. like what? Why is this hospital empty? And part of your game is figuring out why it's empty and it's this unknown, this uncertainty that you're trying to unravel through the narrative. Now did you try other locations as well? Like what made you do the hospital for that setting?
1: Uh, I hate hospitals. (laughs) Um, I just loathe them. I volunteered at a hospital as a, a younger man and one of the things that I did, I worked in admitting we had to take paperwork down to the psych ward all the time and the psych ward to get there was this long empty hallway. And then you walked down, and it just seemed to stretch on forever, and there's no one there, and there was always a light that just didn't turn on. So it was just this dimly lit long hallway that goes down to the psych ward, which already has these negative connotations. Yeah. And then when you get there, you open the door to the psych ward, there's this giant painting of this young woman who unfortunately committed suicide, so her family funded the psych ward. And so, like, you go through total isolation to this just like tragic memorial that is alone so it just feels so alien and strange um so that experience as well as like i was raised by my grandparents so i spent a lot of time with older people which unfortunately means spending a lot of time with hospitals yeah and so nobody goes into a hospital for a good reason except for a pregnancy and even in that case like one step south and that becomes the most tragic thing and so hospitals are kind of these like bastions of all our negativity if you go in sick you leave the sickness there and you come out a better person Mm -hmm. if you go in with an injury an ailment you either die there and the negative like i I hate to use energy but we're just being generic here the (laughs) negative energy of that kind of emanates in that place and so hospitals are basically where we tuck all the bad stuff we don't like and that's the scariest place because carnivals yeah they're creepy because clowns are weird but (laughs) Everybody likes carousels. Right. I mean, you've got to work hard to make a carousel creepy. I don't have to work hard to make doctors scary.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the carnival's got the lights and the sound and the smell of funnel cake. And there's just certain things about a carnival that are happy and nice. Like you're saying, right. hospitals, there's certain locations. Like If you think about horror movies, where they're set. Hospitals, asylums, uh, empty space stations. Like, mm-hmm. that's just uh, the good places for these kinds of of settings, and if you think about it, they're usually dark, they're usually, you know, shadows and things to, again, mess with our uncertainty and mess with our Mm -hmm. ideas of what should be and then what is, and and this is kind of a a funny, Just as you're talking, I thought about this, so at the church I used to work for in Atlanta, uh, we had like a satellite canvas, and that satellite canvas was this older church built in like the 70s, and so the way it was built was kind of odd compared to what we would build now, and we had a food pantry downstairs and it was down this long hallway, and when you and the light switch was like halfway down the hallway, of course, and so it would be this dark, like super dark, no windows in the hallway, and so you'd have to get halfway down before you could turn the light on, and it was just a creepy place, like it's an yes. old church, and you know. And I remember one time, I went in, I went into the food pantry and uh, the freezer. It was a friend of mine that also worked for the church. She and I went down there to get a bunch of bread that we were going to bring back upstairs, and. I can't remember if like the lights like the light went out like the the bulb or whatever and it didn't work and so we I had oh, grabbed some stuff out of the freezer and we, when we shut the freezer so the freezer had a light on so that kind of you know opened yeah. up the room where you could see but I shut the freezer so everything went pitch black and now my eyes are trying oh, to God. adjust and so it's super dark and then apparently <laughs> The freezer makes a weird noise when you shut it, and I did not know about it, and she did not know about it either. And so I shut the freezer, and it goes, like, and it waited like two seconds. So as we're walking out of the room, it goes, doo, 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 doo. and she and I just froze, and we're just like standing there in the middle of this room holding all this bread and these food items. We're just like, what was that? In the pitch black, like we're going to die here. This is where we die. And I turned around and I looked at her and it's calmly I'm trying to like pretend to be calm, but I'm freaking out on the inside. I looked at her, I'm like, it was the it was the freezer. Had to be. There's no other explanation. It had to be the freezer to make that sound. And she's like, freezers don't make that sound. That's not what freezers do. And she's free I was like, oh, let's, just, let's just go. Let's just go. You know. And the next day when I went back down and we had fixed the light bulb, and then I shut the freezer again, it made the same noise. I was like, okay, cool. It really was the freezer. It wasn't ghosts trying to freak us out. But you put people in that environment and you throw one little thing of uncertainty and you know, and darkness and all that, all of a sudden, everything changes. But how do you do that in a board game? Because you can't make players play with the lights off. Uh, you know, how do you really get that feeling in a game? Okay.
1: And this is a great question. And here's where the issue is. So, okay, and I've got to tread cautiously. <laughs> I love board gamers. Yeah. We're a phenomenal community. But we're a community built around knowing all the information, mm-hmm. And a community built around objectively following rules. Uh, horror doesn't like rules. Yeah. It likes rules enough to the point to set an expectation and then defy them mm-hmm. in a way that you're like, oh God, I wasn't expecting that, but it also makes sense. <laughs> uh, and it relies on that unknown information being revealed over time. So with Coma Ward, the best way for us to do that was limit information that's received so for instance once the phenomenon's revealed everyone will know a generic sense of what's going on like hey it turns out you're all in purgatory you need to redeem for some crimes you committed if you want to get some ascension here Hmm. you don't know what everybody else's crimes are you don't even know if they're actually people who are entrapped in purgatory for all you know one of them could be the grim reaper Hmm. who's secretly trying to stop you all from ascending it could be anything. And so giving everyone a base of information and then giving them cards they keep secret that gives them specific goals and informations hidden from everyone else. One, it keeps players invested in the game, which is kind of ideal. And two, it limits information and forces everyone to be on edge because you don't know what everybody else knows. You only know what you know. And maybe what you know is completely irrelevant or completely dependent on someone else's information. So... Toying with how information is revealed and when it's revealed is the best way to incorporate horror into a board game.
0: I think that's a really good way to do it. And and you're, you talked about the envelope system that you're using.
1: So basically, you've got some kind of legacy elements going on. Sort of. So it's kind of like a legacy game in that not all the components are in the base game to begin with. But it's not a legacy game in that it's forever changed. Yeah. Like the core game itself is going to mostly be the same every time you play. There are elements you can add to stop it from being repetitious. Um, I I guess the closest analog would be like Betrayal at House on the Hill in that uh, halfway through the game, it changes. You find out the more rules and everything. But instead of sending one person to sit in a corner (laughs) while everybody else sits at the table plotting against them, you all – Find out the common information at once, and then slowly piece together your individual information, and then play resumes right away. Gotcha. So it's kind of got some Dead of Winter things
0: going on, where you get this like hidden personal objective that you're trying to do, that maybe makes you seem kind of sketchy to everybody else, but you know they know what they're doing, you know what you're doing, and maybe you are the betrayer, and
1: other people don't know that. Is that is that kind of how it works? In some, so in some phenomenon, yes. So yeah. some phenomenon are asymmetrical, so it'll be one person against everyone, but you don't know who they are. Sometimes it'll be completely. Uh, everyone is in opposition to one another, competitive. Or in other times, it's fully cooperative, but you still don't know certain things about each other until a certain condition is met.
0: Gotcha. So every game, it could be very, very different how it, how the end works out.
1: Yes. Uh, in fact, well, one of the first times we were playing it with some, a friend of mine, she was like, okay, so is it a competitive, cooperative or competitive? And I said, eh, we'll find out. <laughs> well, how do we win? We'll find out when we get there. Right. <laughs> and she was like, all right, well, now I have to play your game.
0: Yeah. Now, what are some of the other ways that you're evoking this feeling? Because in a, in a movie, you can rely on camera angles. You can rely on the music and re- really setting that tone and that mood with the music. Or you can use jump scares to freak people out all of a sudden. You can't do that in a game, really. So what are some other ways that you're doing uh, or th- things that you're doing to kind of scare people?
1: Sure. So we have to lean very heavily on the art. Mm. Um, and there's two ways we're doing that. We worked with this phenomenal artist to get the tiles done. And all of the rooms have this gorgeous overhead and their shadows cast from like – and weird red lighting from exit signs uh, and sometimes a gurney. Everything's got this kind of blue azure to it from the like fluorescence. And so leaning heavily on the art to be compelling but also kind of mysterious was something we had to do. Another element is in moments of fear and uncertainty, people start to freak out. Movement in the corner of your eye can be one thing. Sounds can suddenly take on, as you were saying, like your freezer there, the sounds can take on this. If you don't know the origin, your brain will create any narrative it can because we're we're animals at the end of the day and animals are naturally scared because that's how you live, you run away. (laughs) Um, So one of the things that will happen is when you discover a new room, you have to decide if you're focused enough to actually search the room to find a useful item. If you fail a focus check, you hallucinate, and the person to your left draws a card and tells you what you see going on in that room. Sometimes you'll hear a baby crying from inside. Other times you'll see a shadowy figure kind of standing there, and you have to choose how you want to interact with that object, and that choice can have a result. And you can have the same encounter happen multiple times in a row, and make the same choice, and have an entirely different outcome. So that's one of the ways we evoke that feeling, a lot of narrative, but also making that narrative follow an expectation, but then defy that expectation as well.
0: Yeah, because I I know, like we've been talking about, the unknown is what really evokes this theme so well, and so you have to have it. You have to have a lot of replayability. That way, you can have as much unknown as possible. Now, where did you get some of the ideas, the stories? Like, did you read a bunch of Stephen King novels? Like, what did you do to find some of these ideas to go in your game?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a <laughs> I one of the first movies I ever recall seeing is when I was four years old. We watched Species. <laughs> um, not going to say that ruined a lot of romantic relationships for me early on, but uh, woo! <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then when I was five, I saw it. Uh, and then when I was 12, I was just binge-reading Brian Lumley and Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft. So I've always had this kind of love for those stories. I've also, like, I love narratives. I've been a storyteller for a while, whether it's in DD or I write music or whatever. Um, everything's a narrative for me. And so you, you, you write what you know. And if you read a lot of horror, you write a lot of horror. Um, also, every Halloween, my wife and I, starting in September, every night, one to two horror movies. <laughs> Uh, until Halloween's over and then it's all at Christmas Carol because mm-hmm. that's what she likes um, I love my she's got great taste so uh, you know you steal some like there I'm not going to lie in the, one of the expansions there's a phenomenon that's basically Hellraiser mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm not even going to lie uh, you steal other things that you like uh, for instance I love fun little internet conspiracy theories I don't buy into them personally but I'd like to see what kind of weird logic people's minds will take. So there's an internet theory called the monarch mind control thing. I just, one of the phenomenon's based on that. Other times there's stories that I wanted to tell, like I wanted to make a movie uh, that one of the phenomenon's inspired by, that script that I was working on. So sometimes you, you steal. I mean, you're just, all writing is stealing, oh, period. Yeah. Somebody said it better than you, don't pretend to be better than Hemingway, just borrow it, move some commas around, good job. Yeah. Uh, not a Courage of Plagiarism, just admitting it's part of the process. Yeah. So borrow what you like, modify it to make it better, and then if you're really lucky, every once in a while you'll hit a genius individual idea. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to be fair, every story has already
0: been told, like conceptually. And you can break down stories all the way down. I can't remember how many, but there's like less than 10 stories yeah. that are – Available and it's just about what details you put in there, And what kind of uh, the way you tell the story. That's what makes it different. Now, can we expect any M Night Shyamalan plot twist at the end where we find out the whole time it was really just the uh, village elders and they're dressed <laughs> up? You know, do we have anything,
1: anything like that? Each phenomenon ends differently. Ends differently, and some phenomena have different endings. So, for instance, we sent out a review copy to demoers, uh, and I'm not going to lie. Our team did such an amazing job assembling this thing. It actually comes in a patient folder and the rule book, you have to flip through it like a patient chart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's oh God, it's gorgeous. I hope people start posting pictures soon <laughs> uh, regardless. So for that one, there are six, up to six players. Everyone has an independent goal and in the one phenomenon we included and each goal has an entirely different outcome. Hmm. So there are six different endings to the same phenomenon.
0: Wow. Now, a game like this requires an insane amount of development and playtesting and just like working through all the objectives and making sure things work out. How did you do it? What was your process of playtesting this game?
1: Uh, I have a lot of very patient friends (laughs) who basically I would say, hey, I wrote this, sit down, we're Mm -hmm. playing it. Um, And there were multiple sessions where we literally played through the first half of the game to where we discovered the phenomenon. And then we played through a phenomenon made sure it worked, wrapped it, reset the game board to where it was when we found the phenomenon and just dove into the next one. We didn't even play through the first half of the game again. Um, And it was really interesting. And for me, playtesting is important to a point. So I I had this conversation with Richard Lanius one time at a convention. I was like, give me hints, make me be as good as you. (laughs) Um, And I talked to him like, how do you measure playtester feedback? And one of the most important things he said to me was, If they feel the way you wanted them to feel when they play the game, it's fine. If you're not designing the mathiest, abstractiest Euro game, you don't have to number crunch all day long. If a player walks away and says, man, I didn't like when this thing happened and you wanted them to hate that, 10 out of 10. Right. So – uh, it's a lot of impression. It's a very subjective process. I, Jamie Stegmeier's got an amazing playtesting process, but he also designs very mathematical. He basically makes calculus with cardboard, and that's amazing. And he has to playtest 400 times. Coma Ward, I don't want you rereading the same paragraph six times because then it loses its impact. Right. So it, it was a delicate process.
0: Yeah, and ultimately balance is its perspective. You know, it's 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 relative. It's not, there's no such thing as true balance, not really. It's do the players feel like the game played fair. And with horror, you can kind of stretch that a bit because the you yeah. know the main bad guy, if I th- you think about Jason or Freddy, some of those big bad guys, they like you were saying earlier, they could stretch the rules. They could break the rules and do things. And we didn't feel uh, upset as an audience because this is the world that we have entered into where, yes, Jason can appear out of nowhere anytime he wants. And that's just part of the rules of this world. And so I think you have... Uh, it's less of a challenge, I think, in in this kind of a game. Is that am I am I thinking right?
1: Yeah. In all honesty, the playtesting part of the game was not difficult for me. I went ahead and designed the expansion content as well. So there's 25 total phenomenon between the base game and the two expansions. So I effectively had to write 25 horror novels that just happen to also have rules text, <laughs> and then the base game content. So the biggest problem for me was consistently generating that content and making sure that it was always fresh and invigorating and then getting it in front of enough people's eyes to make sure that it's edited properly and that it feels the way I want it to without getting it in front of too many people's eyes for them to go run their mouths about it.
0: Yeah, now where did you find the balance or even is there a balance between just the narrative of the game, what you've written, you know, players reading that off compared to something like Time Stories or Cthulhu's Vault or something like that where it's really up to the players to kind of put things in their own words and create the story a little bit as they go where where does this game fall and then why did you choose that
1: sure so i, I designed this more along the lines of a dnd campaign so it's very narrative heavy and players are more focused on their choice and how that choice plays on the narrative time stories one of the key mechanics is not everybody gets to read all of the text you have to convey that in a certain way i and there are certain situations in Coma Ward where, yeah, you need to read the whole thing to everybody because it's relative to them. So it, it definitely leans more towards the narrative side and less towards players creating their own narrative. However, it's your game. I mean, sure, I made it. But when you buy it and you play it, I don't, play it your way, man. <laughs> so if you're like, OK, it says this, but I feel this way about it, that's fine. That's your truth. Do it. Yeah, for sure. Now let's
0: let's talk about some of the challenges that you run into. You know, we talked about a couple so far, but let's talk about some of the more challenges you ran into. Like, how long did, did this game take to design, <laughs> develop, and all that?
1: Uh, total time about a year and a half.
0: Okay, so not actually not quite as long as I thought. I thought you were going to say at least two years. Like this kind of a game of this many options and all that stuff.
1: It was it was uh, okay. So it was really about a two year process, but it was a year and a half of actual like creation it was six months of kind of like tooling with the idea and like making a a proof of concept and then 18 months from alpha to completion
0: okay gotcha and so what were some of the challenges you ran into during that process because like i said earlier you know this kind of game it's not like you could go look at another game and go i'm gonna make it kind of like this you know it's not like oh king of tokyo is really cool let me change four or five rules and make you know
1: king of new york it's not. it didn't work
0: that way so how (laughs) did
1: how did you go through that process Oh, boy. Uh, so the initial version of the game was basically Betrayal of House on the Hill with one deck. Because mm-hmm. I was like, I like Betrayal of House on the Hill, but the game's not streamlined. And the second half of the game takes forever to get to, and everybody's isolated. So let me just fix those four things. And that was an okay version of the game. Um, it played, and people were like, this is better than Betrayal of House on the Hill, because mm-hmm. we love you, Danny, and we want to support you. <laughs> um <laughs> And then I got real feedback from Zev Schallinger of uh, the Z and Z-Man games at a prototype convention. He played it and he was like, this is okay, but you don't have this. You don't have this. You don't have that. You need to do this. And that's when I just sat down and within six hours completely changed the game to incorporate elements of player choice and uh, decrease randomosity while increasing chance. And so like actually applying design logic to the game. What a shocker. Uh, So that's where the process really started. And then from there, the time commitment came into, okay, how do I make these interesting narratives for the phenomenon as well as making the gameplay interesting? And then how do you make that as accessible as possible um, rules-wise? So basically, because there's phenomenon that in themselves could have been entire board games. There's one where it's kind of like bang meets werewolf with this clicking time mechanic. And you've also got to solve this internal puzzle that should have been its own game. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what did I do? Why is that a fifth of the game? So that's where it became the true challenge of finding, like, how do you convey these interesting mechanical concepts while maintaining an endearing narrative And writing in a way that people want to keep reading your obnoxiously long paragraphs. Why am I so wordy, dear God?
0: Yeah, because I can see how this kind of a game could easily just become an activity as opposed to actually being a game with choices and things that matter. And there's nothing wrong with activities, but if you're making an activity, you're running up against why wouldn't somebody just watch a movie or why wouldn't they just read a really good book? And so making this into a game can be a very difficult thing. So what are some ways that the mechanics of the game really push forward that theme? That way they do have good choices and it's a game, but it's also still that horror thing going on.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things that we incorporated in the exploration part of the game is this thing called neuroses. So as you walk around the hospital, your terror is going to increase, and that means your focus is going to go down. The more terrified you are, the less focused you are. Um, And eventually, as you take – would become more scared, you'll take physical pain. So you can literally die of fright. Um, So as your terror changes, each character has a neuroses that becomes more exaggerated. So somebody starts out as calm when they're not too terrified and they're focused and there's a benefit to that they get rewarded for hey if you would gain two terror, you only gain one instead So they're gonna intentionally make choices where they're constantly searching and trying to get scared because it doesn't bother them Once they cross that threshold from calm though, they go into being like complacent and so, they can't move as much on their turn Mm. because they're like, oh, whatever. (laughs) And so they might be encouraged to just keep exploring the room they're in or fighting another player just to see what happens. And then eventually they reach their ultimate level and they get a stat bonus. They get what we call adrenaline. And then they also have like this crazy insane ability that only they have access to. Like when somebody walks in your tile, just take one of their items. And so... As you become more terrified, you get encouraged to explore different play paths in the game. And as you become less terrified, you might be able to flip your neuroses over to where instead of three sections, it has two. And these abilities are much more dramatic. And they're how your person coped with calming. And you can't flip back to the other side. Mm -hmm. So the calm person might transition into brave where it's like, hey, man, if you get into a fight, you don't take that first point of damage. But then eventually you become Uh, sadistic Mm. and so you can't carry any weapons you can only fight people with your fists but you get crazy strength bonuses so putting elements in the game where players can capitalize on the different options they have and encouraging each one of them to explore a different play path is a really great way to overcome the feeling of it being an activity
0: yeah and i think that gives players some really interesting like moral decisions as well You know, and that's one thing I love about D&D is you can kind of explore things maybe in the real world you wouldn't, but in D&D you can. And so it sounds like in your game you can explore some things that maybe in the real world you wouldn't go that far. But let's see what happens in the game, right? Right. Well, cool, man. Any other challenges that you had to work through with the game?
1: Um, Yes. So I – there was one design element – And and my publisher is going to hate that I bring this story up. Uh, So there was one design element in the game that I really wanted. And it was going to be in one of the expansions. And I wanted the phenomenon to feature this really over-the-top, like just almost egregiously obnoxious body horror element. Okay. Where uh, effectively the phenomenon boiled down to this. It turned out that one player... Was this chosen individual who'd been selected by this cult because they were like the special one? They were this cult's perception of a messiah figure. And two other players now became manifestations of these like lesser gods that needed to meet on the same space as the chosen to birth this new creator being that was going to unmake the universe and recreate it anew. Okay. Uh, right, you know, easy peasy right. light stuff. Easy to <laughs> convey. So huh, we're the line that I I I was unmoving on this, I was like, this is how it's gonna work. The two beings that have to meet on the same space, one of them's gonna be the manifestation of masculinity, and they're gonna be this giant penis monster. <laughs> (laughs) This, like, grotesque abomination of a fleshy, meaty, contorted, David Cronenberg-style dick just (laughs) flopping around the hospital. And the other one is going to be the manifestation of masculinity. And they're going to be this horrifying vagina beast. And they have to meet on the space with the special one. And then they turn into a god. A weird, grotesque Akira. What Tesuo turns into at the end of the movie, god monster. And then everybody else either has to stop the two from meeting or fight a god abomination. Um, I can't imagine (laughs) why the publisher had a problem with this. Right? (laughs) So the publisher was like, can they not be dick and vagina monsters? (laughs) And I was like, I I'm an artist. I'm unwavering. Arr, you don't understand my vision. I'm a baby with a pen. Arr. And the Kickstarter could have
0: these really great miniature stretch goals. It would be yeah. Right? <laughs> Freud would be
1: proud. So um needless to say, I, I kind of stepped back and like had to completely redesign that concept. Yeah um because you know what listen if the only complaint they have is hey we need less dick and vagina monsters other than that design whatever you want maybe my ego's in the way so that was the biggest challenge i think i've talked to so many designers
0: and people in the industry and not once has that ever come up as a challenge <laughs> yeah I just i wanted a lot of genitalia in my game and the poster wasn't big on that <laughs>
1: You're telling me Richard Lanius didn't talk about how hard it is to get manifestations of our sexual frustrations in games?
0: None didn't come up. Now, maybe the next episode. Hopefully have him on again. And we can maybe travel down that road. I don't know. Uh, I mean, his name's Richard, after all. But, yeah, so, <laughs> All right. Any other challenges? I don't know how you top uh, top that one. I think that was the top of the mountain. But anything else you ran into as far as that goes?
1: I will say uh, I did have a lot of life events happen, like, towards the later half of development. So there was a deadline that I had been working on, but I hadn't, like, been optimizing my time. Standard writer issues. Um, Hey, give me a deadline. Great. I'll get on it a week before that. Uh, (laughs) So there was a 36-hour period where I finalized six, eight phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I did not sleep for 36 hours, and I did not move writing. One of those phenomenon got real weird towards the end. <laughs> but uh, it got made, dang it. It got weirder than sexual genitalia
0: monsters trying to run into each other. I said pretty
1: weird. I didn't say max weird. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> gotcha. So I'm assuming you would not recommend the wait until 36 hours out approach.
1: Well, so I did a lot of outlining. Yeah. Like I, I fortunately had all the groundwork laid. I just had to go in and like fluff it. Uh, and it takes time because you got to make each phenomenon sound distinct. Right. So, publisher, I promise I did all my work. Chris, I promise <laughs> I did it. Um, but yeah, I recommend you know if you have, that's the hardest challenge I think for any creative person, right? Because you have moments of like profound creativity yeah. where you're just churning out stuff left, right, and center, and then you have these moments where you're like. Yeah, I've got some ideas, but I don't have the drive. Mm -hmm. Or you've got times where you're like, I need to make something, but you don't have any inspiration. And so and it's a weird timeline, right? Like where the two moments meet of like profound energy and like divine inspiration where they meet is very low Mm -hmm. in the overall creative lifetime. And then a deadline adds pressure and everybody responds to pressure differently. And so like if you are a designer – and you're working with a publisher and they give you a deadline you need to be self-actualized enough to know this is when i'm creative and use it yeah slam your foot on the gas and drive as far as you can because you're going to have three weeks where something goes wrong in your life or you're just exhausted from your real-time job because and this is the this is i'm going to shatter some illusions Board game designing doesn't pay your bills. What? Eric Lang is a very lucky man. What? He is not everybody. <laughs> what are we do? What? This isn't a lucrative right? industry. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> nope. <laughs> so uh, you realize like you're never going to be consistently creative for a long period of time. Know yourself enough to utilize your inspiration and force yourself through writer's block. And people are like, I don't know what to write. Anything. Right. Just sit down at a keyboard and start typing. Eventually your brain will get it together.
0: No, I so, think that's I think that's dead on. It's just some of the best advice there is for any creative person. Because dealing with pace is a very difficult thing as a creative. And there's sometimes when the pace just gets out of hand. But one thing I've told people in the past that are wanting to write a book or, you know, build a website or design a game, whatever, any creative venture is just create a system. Like, motivation is not a system. Like, motivation, in all honesty, is not even a real thing. I think it's <laughs> something we just kind of pretend and, oh, I'm going to be mo-. like, no, there's no motivation. It's you just sit down and start, just show up. Like, 99% of this stuff is just showing up and beginning something, and you just keep showing up enough. At the end of of that process, you have something that you can be very proud of. You just keep showing up, keep working on it, and creating a system. And I love what you said. Find what works best for you. Like what time of the day are you most creative? What time of the day are you most productive? And then schedule out that time and, and die on that hill. Like that's one thing I've been really trying to do is is saying, hey, I love my family, I love my kids, but like from this hour to this hour, I have to work on this like it's a job. I'm not making any money off of it, not yet. Hopefully, one day down the road, a game will get signed and I'll make some money off this thing I'm working on. But right now, I'm just gonna act like it's a job, and I'm gonna schedule this time, and I'm gonna die on that hill. The phone's off, the notifications are off, everything, and let's just go to work and it's amazing what happens when you take that approach and what you can accomplish and, and get done. So anybody out there that's really struggling with procrastination or struggling with all these ideas in your head that you just can't get them out and get them on a table, schedule it, like make it important enough where you create a system because motivation
1: or inspiration are not systems. They will not get you to where you want to go. No. Not at all. And and I know you probably have this issue too. Like another challenge for me was Like, when I work on a project for a long period of time, eventually my brain's like, okay, I get it. Ooh, spooky hospital. (laughs) What about this new shiny idea we have? And the struggle for me was like, no, Mm -hmm. we cannot start another game right now. This is the one. Get over it. And basically talking to the creative four-year-old in your mind that thinks that assembling imaginary blocks into concepts is work (laughs) to shut up so you can do real work is difficult.
0: No, for sure. But just like any other job, like it's easy to start looking off in the distance and going, wow, I wish I could do this or wish I could go there or do that. But you can't because you have work to do. You have to get your job done. If you (laughs) want to keep making paychecks, you know, and maybe that's something you work towards down the road. And hey, write those ideas down. Keep a notebook with you. Write the ideas down. Don't lose them. But finish the job just like you would at your real job, in your day job. And so I think just taking that just very serious approach to things is really the difference between wanting to do this as a hobby or a fun little activity and actually wanting to do this for real is actually taking it seriously. Like go pro, even if you're not making money. Like go pro in your mentality of how mm-hmm. you approach these things. And I think that goes a long way in going from just a hobby into an actual designer.
1: Full on. Um, I think one of the biggest inspirations for me when I was working on Comaward was uh... – I I love Dan Harmon. Like, I love community. I love, uh, oh, geez. I love Rick and Morty. So, like, I fell in love with his podcast, Harmontown, when I had a job 45 minutes away. So every day I was listening to his podcast. They did a documentary on it. And in it, like, he's traveling the country doing this podcast. And he's also supposed to be working on two pilot scripts. And watching him say things like, eh, giving a writer a deadline is like, telling him to not do anything for six months and then he'll get to work on it the week before. And I'm like you, this, what? <laughs> yep. This is literally your life and you, mm. no, no sir. And so like that was a big inspiration for me to be like, well I know I've got six months but uh, we're getting to work today, sir. Mm-hmm. And just sitting down at the keyboard. Yeah. So watch Dan Harmon flounder and you'll succeed. Right, I think, was
0: Neil Gaiman, I saw this quote the other day and he was talking about writing a book. And he says, to write a book, you simply sit down and put one word after the other until it's done. It's just that easy and it's just that hard. I'm like, dang. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're dead on. And Neil Gaiman's written so many books and comics and all these different things, and that's his process. I'm going to sit down at the computer. I'm going to put one word after another until the thing's finished. And I was like, okay. And just taking that approach and, and being serious about it. Absolutely. Now, going back to... Your game? How in the world did you pitch this game? Because like again, horror theme <laughs> games are not normal. There's not like, oh, I got this new fantasy game. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Like, how do you find the publisher for this game, and then how do you pitch it?
1: Oh boy. So for Comaward, Award, um, all right, I'm very lucky. I have a background in performance arts and writing, and so one of the things that I'm very fortunately gifted at is convincing people to listen to me talk mm. and talking convincingly enough to get them to listen. Right. So. Pigeon Co-Award worked out for me because I was at Gen Con. Let me me paint the picture for you. We're at Gen Con. Now, which Gen Con? Uh, 2016. Okay. This is my first Gen Con. Very first day, evening, we go to the big, like... Party in the weird train station area. Let me paint you a word picture as I stumble around describing things. <laughs> so it's this big after party after the first day, um, and everybody in the industry is there, and they're all sitting at tables, and you get a free drink, and you get free promos for getbit Ooh, White Shark. Anyway, so and Card Sleeves. Oh, so really? we, I'm sitting down at this table. I meet the designers for the first time, Chris and Jim. Never met them before. They've spent all day putting their booth together. They are exhausted. I'm sitting down. First Gen Con, and I just say, Come on, is a horror game, takes place in a hospital. They're like, how do you win? We'll find out. Come again? Mm -hmm. How do you, uh, well, is it competitive or cooperative? I said, we'll find out. So we sit down, put the game on the table, explain the basic mechanisms to them as quickly as possible. Best way to pitch, every game has a narrative, whether you intended it or not. Mm -hmm. Every game has an educational outcome, whether you intended it or not. And those better tie into your mechanics. So when I'm talking about flipping a tile over, I'm really talking about discovering a room. Hmm. So if you can't weave your gameplay as a story, you need to sit down and either fix your gameplay or write yourself a script. Because the only way to pitch your game is one gorgeous narrative of raising conflict, explanation. Everything leads to one another logically. So we're in the middle of this crowded room. Everyone is talking and drinking and having a good time. There's somebody on stage shouting about a giveaway and they're completely transfixed on the game because, oh, thank you gods for giving me charisma. You didn't give me a pretty face, but you made me a compelling (laughs) voice. So there's something there. So we draw them through the game. We didn't even have the best experience. Like to be honest, the game went on too long. There wasn't an element at the time for player elimination. Like there was still so much development to be done. But they were so entranced by the potential of the game that they fell in love with it. And if your idea is strong enough to be incomplete and still entrance someone, you're in the right place. Yeah. Uh, and I lucked out that night. They hadn't made a decision yet. They were like, "We'll meet you tomorrow morning at our hotel. Come meet us for breakfast." I meet them at their breakfast. Uh, Chris slept like a baby. Jim looks ragged dog worn, just exhausted, like Jimmy O'caney's like, no, your game gave me nightmares, <laughs> and that's why we're picking it up yeah and so you know if you're pitching a horror game, find somebody prone to nightmares, and you're good to go <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gotcha. Well, that's a really cool story, man and congratulations uh it's it's just an amazing new type of thing, new 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 way to look at games and not just. Uh, not just a couple new mechanics but just like a really cool way uh, to to re- just approach a game in a different kind of way. I'm excited about it. Now, do you have any any closing advice for anybody that's wanting to work on a horror game or maybe just got the idea because of this episode? Like any advice for them?
1: Definitely. So, horror is big and complicated and there are a lot of niche genres just like fantasy, just like sci-fi. Treat horror with some dignity. Treat horror with some respect treat horror with some humor and you're good to go. Every zombie game's already been made. So your zombies better be awesome. Yeah. Every Cthulhu game's already been made three times over. Don't pick Cthulhu <laughs> or put Cthulhu in your zombies and throw in some other thing nobody's done before and find a way to make your mechanics reflect that. Cause at the end of the day, you're designing a game. So always make the way your game plays reflect the narrative you're weaving and that's that's just life advice yeah awesome
0: danny man really appreciate you coming on the show we're about to head over into a bonus round we're going to talk about how to help other designers play test so as a designer helping other designers play test and the ways to do that some tips and tricks danny's been doing that a good bit helping other designers make their games better so i want to hear his thoughts on that topic but danny again thanks for coming on the show and good luck with coma Award. good luck with everything you got going on right
1: now Thank you very much. It's been my absolute pleasure. Remember, couple Words on Kickstarter. Go check it out. Uh, all right. Thanks, man.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?